0: Welcome to season two of 52 Reasons Why, the podcast brought to you by Protect Minnesota. Here, we look at the issue of gun violence and explore solutions that will reduce gun death in our state. We're using this platform to bring you a variety of perspectives and voices from across the state of Minnesota, all advocating for gun violence prevention. This podcast is a tool to help decision makers and stakeholders throughout our communities make informed decisions that will mitigate this public health issue. This is for the survivors of gun violence. This is for our loved ones that have been ripped from our lives. This is for the supporters, the volunteers, and the frontline workers who give selflessly and tirelessly to the movement. Thank you for tuning in and showing your support for gun violence prevention i'm Ayolanda, the director of community response and education for protect minnesota
1: hey there welcome back everybody to a new episode of 52 reasons why the protect minnesota podcast I'm your host, Jared Muscovitz, Director of Outreach and Organizing, uh, back again with a, uh, a special episode uh, in many ways because, um, you know, if you've been listening to our podcast, we have had uh, elected officials on. We've had community leaders on here in Minnesota, um, but an important aspect of this movement is the research and the data that drives it Uh, protect minnesota is a data-driven organization everything that we want to do is rooted in what the research tells us is effective and what isn't effective and to that end i thought it would be really important and valuable to bring on a guest who can speak directly uh, to the research and data and give us a sense of what it says and what it means. So I'm so happy to be joined today by uh, Dr. Mark Zimmerman. He is the Marshall H. Becker Collegiate Professor and the co-director of the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention at the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Zimmerman, welcome to 52 Reasons Why, and thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thanks for having me, appreciate the
1: opportunity. Awesome, well, well, yeah, I mean, it's great to have you here and to have someone who has this expertise you know, so I think I think it'd be great just to dive right in and kind of kind of start. And I think, you know, to start off, I think it would be great for you to, to tell us about your background and, and tell us about your work leading the the Youth Violence Prevention Center um, and kind of just give us an overview of of, you know, what the studies and research have taught you and other experts about gun violence prevention as it relates to youth and, and what things like early intervention, violence interruption, you know, tell us what you what the top lines are, I guess. What have you learned? What should we know? And and what should we know about the work that you do over at the University of Michigan?
2: Well, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity. And I, I won't go into my background all the way down to my elementary school, but, <laughs> um, uh, but I have my PhD is in psychology uh, from another Big Ten school, the University of Illinois. And um, I studied there uh, people's engagement in uh, efforts to... Uh, have influence and efficacy in their own lives empowerment theory basically and almost all my work is built from that and the, the, the idea there is looking at what's positive in people's lives and how that can um how how we build that up uh, rather than just focusing on what's wrong and how do we fix those things so it's sort of a more building than um than it is a uh, a fixing and as i talk you'll see though that theme carrying itself out i I've developed that into Um, Also, uh, I I discovered this work on uh, positive youth development and resiliency theory, which is also, what are the factors in kids' lives that helps them overcome the risks they face? And so way back when, in in 1994, I started a study in uh, Flint uh, following high school students that we followed for um, basically uh, 12 years of data over about a 15 to 16 year period. So we followed them through high school into adult or early adulthood, emerge what sometimes developmental psychologists call emerging adulthood, and then into uh, later life. And some of the themes and findings from that study we've translated into interventions, and it very quickly became um, uh, studying uh, violence because violence has so many uh, uh, sequelae or negative effects, uh, and it is so present in our lives in so many ways and as kids go through school there's bullying there's isolation there's all sorts of things that happen in school with peers there's exposures in in uh, communities um there's even suicides that are, are connected to it so quickly firearms also kind of built from there so it really started about about 30 years ago so one the three key things that we have found that we then turned into a program called, of course, youth empowerment solutions, um, and the three things that we found that were really pretty consistent is that adults matter in kids' lives, adults matter in emerging adults' lives, and adults matter throughout our lives. And the idea when I say adults matter, it's the support that we get from those people who are ahead of us in terms of helping us navigate the world, learn about you know, for some emotional support for. Um, Cognitive support, Uh, the idea like where we get ideas, how do we figure out this problem? And so problem-solving support, all sorts of kind of support that we get from, initially from our parents as we're growing up, but then we may get from our coaches, our teachers. Uh, We might get from uh, uh, religious leaders. We might get that from uh, informal uh, relationships that we have in in, in, uh, after-school programs. So adults matter. Um, So we kind of, Using that, we've started to think about well, what would a program look like where we connect adults with kids in a natural way? So this idea of mentors, uh, but it's not just mentors; it's it's bigger than that. A second finding that we've consistently found, and, and the Flint adolescent study was predominantly African American kids from uh, the uh, Flint community schools, um, and. What we found was they have a strong sense of African-American identity. That's, that's a positive identity for themselves and that it's a strong and central identity for themselves, that that was protective. That we found that actually helped them avoid some of the risks that they may be facing of other friends being getting into fights. They're less likely to get in fights. Other friends who might be drinking alcohol, they may be less likely uh, to drink alcohol. We also found that true for, you know, parent support, and then subsequently other adults. And then thirdly, we found that kids who were involved in extracurricular activities, whether it's sports or whether it's uh, other kinds of clubs, uh, boys and girls club, but if they're involved in positive activities with their time, that those things were also related to less problem kinds of behaviors, whether it's drug use or violent behavior. So what we did is that that subsequently led us to developing a program called Youth Empowerment Solutions, which is, uh, we've now found that it's had both uh, three-month and one-year effects of improving in uh, uh, kids, uh, reducing kids' violent behavior and, in, and enhancing their positive behaviors. And the Youth Empowerment Solutions is a, a, about a 10 to 15-week curriculum, depending on how many days a week. It was originally designed as a two day a week after school program where we help kids develop the scaffolding for being community change agents. And in, those, in, that, in being community change agents, we gave them the scaffolding of thinking about problems, looking in their community and looking at positive and negative aspects. We give them a, a photo voice project where they go out and take pictures of where violence may occur or spaces or places where that might occur and taking pictures and then they discuss them. Or we ask them, what about where are, where are safe places and what makes them safe? So we get them not only thinking about community, but we get them to start thinking critically. And we're talking about middle school aged kids. Uh, and then that's culminates into a project that they end up developing. That's a community change project. So it might be a mural, a community garden or a community celebration of some kind. So um, the, the, it's all the scaffolding building up to that project that they design that's theirs. And they have to learn about um well what do you need to do a mural so what we did is we we brought them we, we helped them identify some local artists some local mural artists and then they interviewed the mural artists and they, they picked the one they wanted to work with and that mural artist helped them implement their design for this mural which since 19 uh, 2008 is still up and is not wow. been graffiti graf- graffiti eyes and you can go wow. to our website to see that website I, I mean to see that um, that mural so so this program two other aspects of this program one is it's working with adults so we we intentionally create opportunities for adults and the and the middle school age kids and the adults might be other teachers might be volunteers uh, might be the mural artist or the uh, they made a rap song that you can go listen to on the website as well um which is yes uh, S-P-H E-D-U. And you can listen to their rap song. We help them identify recording artists. They interviewed them. Um, and then they actually developed and wrote this song and learned how to record. They, they, they used their photo voice projects. One project, one group of kids you did their photo voice project. They made a calendar. Uh, that We helped them identify local printers. They interviewed them. They worked with the local printers then they sold the calendars and used the money to fund a soup kitchen
0: uh, wow. to to help
2: fund some of the soup kitchen I didn't fund the soup kitchen but you, you get the gist of what I'm what I'm saying and the the other so one component was the extracurricular activity and being positive change and beginning to think critically about their their uh, their community and their place in it and and it's it's theirs the second uh, the second thing is throughout the throughout the curriculum there are uh efforts to um, help kids develop and learn about the history of African Americans in America. Uh, they, they learn about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. They learn about the history of uh, slave the slave trade. They learn about um, the history, uh, uh, you know, modern history of the United States. They, they make African masks and talk about African masks. And there are videos that you can listen to and watch. And then we so we have adults also connected to the whole process as well. So uh, we're trying to take those three findings and we have turned it in, into that. From there, we then said we looked at okay, if they even put up this mural or make this garden, does it change? Does crime go down in those areas around it? Does it have any effect in the community? And what we found initially was yes, it does. But we didn't have a control group. We didn't. It wasn't really perfectly designed study, but it certainly suggested that that might be making some community change. That led us to some work that we then discovered that was already in the literature called Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. And then we built on some other work that others have done where we're looking at if you create positive spaces in communities that have been devastated by um, industrial decline, will that help improve it? And we created this idea of busy streets theory. And busy streets theory is basically a counterpart to broken windows theory. And the idea of broken windows theory, in in um, and some people argue, well, that's not exactly what the original authors meant. But it's come to mean this idea that one broken window sends a message that people aren't watching and nobody cares. And so another broken window occurs and another broken window. And then the next thing you know, it's the slippery slope of a community or a neighborhood kind of becoming... Uh, pretty run down, more decline, in decline. Crime, yeah. In yeah. decline. Yeah. So what we said, and based on some of the work from the YES program, we said, well, if uh, the uh, these empty lots, instead of being places for dump, dumping garbage and overgrown, what if we mow it? What if we plant a garden? What if we create a space um, in this street where instead of it looking like no one's paying attention, making it look like people are paying attention, creating a busy street where people are out there and are mowing the lawn and are planting a garden and are coming and talking in positive ways, will that send a message where there'll be less crime? And what we're finding is the answer is absolutely yes, that is, and is, we're finding it pretty consistently. But an important piece of that, and that goes back to the empowerment idea, is that what we're finding is that if you just mow it and make it look like people are paying attention, um, that's positive. But what's even better is when it's community engaged, when it's community owned, when the community The residents are the ones who are doing the planting, when it's the residents who are the ones who are doing the mowing and planning on what to do with that space, because then they'll start using that space in different kinds of ways. They might plant a little mini garden uh, or a little mini flower garden and have a bench, and all of a sudden people are sitting down and talking in positive ways. And the nefarious activity is like, well, we don't want to operate here because... There's people watching. There's too eyes many on the eyes. Street. Yeah. Right. Too many
1: eyes.
0: So yeah.
2: I want to say two things about that. One criticism that often comes up is well, are you just moving the crime somewhere else? Uh, and we're finding that no, that we're not necessarily moving the crime somewhere else. Because it's happening at a small scale, the overall crime rate in the city isn't going down because we're working on a street or two or five or 12 or 30 streets at a time in a big city, you know, like Minneapolis or a big city like Detroit. That's a drop in the bucket, but in that area, it's not moving just to the next block or the next two blocks. Now, are they moving away or outside? Well, possibly, but the more you do this, the um, the more likely there'll be less places for nefarious activity to occur. That's one thing. Another cr- criticism is that, well, that's what you're, you're talking about is gentrification, and that has a lot of negative effects on community, and that isn't what we're talking about. We're yep. talking about local residents Taking a street, we're not talking about, or, or I'm sorry, taking a, uh, a a a lot or two lots, or helping this um, rundown house or abandoned house. There's ways that uh, people can, you, instead of hammering plywood on the outside, you hammer it on the inside and you paint it, and all of a sudden, when you drive by, it doesn't quite look like it's just an abandoned house. It just looks like nobody's necessary there at the moment. There are ways to do that. Um, that we have also found to be effective. Um, we've also found that uh, demolishing rundown houses is, is a positive effect in the community, but then it creates the empty lot that you have to do something about. So it's not gentrification because it's community-owned, community-directed. Uh, two other things about that is, but it can't be just the community's responsibility, the resident's responsibility, because that just goes back to blaming the victim. It has, the the, the city, has, the, the police, the city council, there has to be local resources to help them do that. So police have to be supportive to, to help patrol the street, to not abandon it because we know that that's a high crime area and we're not gonna patrol it. There's not many people there. They have to be partners. The city council has to be partners. So the county has to be partners to help fund you know, the planting, the mowing, the, the activities that may occur there. So it's not on them alone, but when it is, it helps empower them to feel like they own it and they create the busyness of that street.
1: The it last thing, to me oh sorry, go you you finish up there, yeah, well, for sure. I, I was just gonna say the the
2: last thing, so uh it you know, the um oh shoot, I forgot what it was. And it wasn't because you interrupted me. <laughs> um uh the, the uh it was well it was gentrification. I mentioned the okay, that we could leave it at that.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's what's what, what strikes me. You know, we are talking about what the research has told you, um, what you've learned about how. Obviously, you know, we're talking about keeping kids engaged. We're talking about um, giving them uh, not just um, you know friends, but a community, right? A buy-in from people of all ages. I love this idea that we're that you know, and as a I'm 33, right? I I you know I. You learn growing up, like you know, when you're younger, you think I'm going to become an adult and things are going to make sense. I'm going to know all this stuff. And then you realize once you're going through it, you're still learning so much as you go. So this idea that adults, we need adults, even as adults, I wholeheartedly agree and and feel that is totally true. Um, what I find interesting, though, is we have talked about all this stuff and we haven't talked about the, the gun aspect of it because. We have to start with the root causes, and at Protect, we talk often about working at the working at this problem holistically and from all angles, and it's the root causes. It's the early investments. All this stuff I'm hearing is if we can get in early, if we can you know, interrupt someone's path where they're heading down a path towards potentially you know, being violent, getting involved in crime, picking up a gun, we can then – you know, it's an it's a an investment worth making. That's often at times our argument, and so and so I'm glad to hear that the data really kind of fleshes that out. I think, you know, it's interesting though. I I do want to talk about the specifics of the the firearm. You know, the gun violence aspect. That's what we do. I would be remiss not to talk about that. And so I'm wondering, you know, what you can tell us about. You know, we, we you, you've told us about methods of prevention. Essentially, you know, investing early creating community, uh, creating community spaces where people feel that they feel ownership, right? It's not gentrification, It's this is their space. This is for us, right? I would love to feel that kind of sense of community. I think that's really important and powerful. Um, when we start talking about guns and we start talking about in particular, you know, youth picking up guns and using guns, you know, illegally, obviously, you know, what do we know What have you learned and what can you tell us about, you know, methods of prevention? What works? What isn't effective? um, What are things that we've tried that aren't that aren't working? You know, um, just generally speaking, you know, what can you tell us about all this stuff? But then when we start throwing the gun into it and it further complicates things. Well,
2: I think that's great. I think this is a great point. Let me just say that some of what I was talking about is exactly root causes. I'm really glad you brought that up. In fact, that's the kind of work we're working on right now. We have a project in Muskegon, Michigan, in Washington, D.C., working with local folks, focusing on specifically firearms. And what we're doing is we're honoring what's going on in the local community. And we're trying to see, because you know who knows it better than the people who live there? Um, and we're trying to help them both kind of... Um, standardize what they're doing at the same time evaluating it we we wrote this proposal talking about we we're given the gun epidemic that's happening the firearm epidemic in the United States we have to fly the plane while we're also building it yeah and so we we didn't want to start something from scratch we want to honor what was going on and so we, and the, some of the root causes is they are um, the, both programs are uh, focusing on uh, contextual factors not just looking at individual kids but also helping the kids think critically about it's not an accident where uh, these empty lots are and where the nefarious activities are occur- occurring and why community violence often occurs in lower income communities. The, the, a lot of the same root causes for violence and for all the kind of um, all sorts of negative negative sequelae that that result from poverty and abandonment and disenfranchisement of people and communities is. Also, the root cause of firearms. Now, we haven't been able to officially fi- study firearms, <coughs> excuse me, um, because of a, a limit by and uh, by the federal government. But that that's changed over the last couple of couple five years, um, and and we are starting to build a, a a body of work on that. The work I talked about about the greening work, the uh, community improvement work. Um, the uh, empty lot work. We are finding that there is also having an effect on violence, but also on firearm police incidents as well. And I don't mean just police shootings in that case, but police incidents meaning that uh, why they were there. So we have data from uh, police being called to a scene. They code what's in that. When they code that there was a firearm involved in some way, whether it was a shooting or the person was arrested for uh, unlawful uh, possession or brandishing, or for whatever reason, we have found that this is also relevant for that. And, and let me and for wow. firearm uh, outcomes. So what I one of the ways that we we think about this, and what I've noticed, and why I've gotten involved in firearm research in in the last five years or more, is that the root causes, the the bottom of the the iceberg underneath the water of the the iceberg is is firearms. What's What's below the water is very much the same kinds of risk factors: poverty, isolation, disenfranchisement. When we think about school shootings, it's school climate. School climate is related to you know a kid being isolated and bullied, and that's a precursor to firearms. Rarely does somebody wake up in the morning, out of the blue, pick up a gun and start shooting people. It's usually planned it's usually even communicated in some way and there are lots of signs for anybody but especially these mass shooters that we see so there's all of those root causes you said and some of them are structural like we're talking about poverty racism uh disenfranchisement and some of them are the, at, at the next level then you know that creates you know less supports for families and so, so yeah, then you have violence in families and we know violence in families results in violent kids and violent kids results in more bullying, and the and the cycle continues. So uh, our current project is actually trying to look at what are some of those root causes, and and how can we start to start, you know, break the chain and the cycle. And if we can break it at any point, then we don't end up where the firearms are. But let me just say another thing about firearms in general. We we often, and when I um, uh, give talks about this, I I usually start with. Think about firearm violence. What do you think about? What's the first thing you think about? And I think most people will either say um, they'll talk about community violence, homicides that happen in uh, our communities around the country, or they'll think of mass shootings. Mass shootings account for 1% of all, uh, and mass shootings defined as three or four, depending on who you're talking to, of people who are killed. So if two people are injured or one person is killed, that doesn't count as a mass shooting. So, But when you think about mass shootings in that way, 1% of all shootings, of all firearm homicides are accounted for by mass shootings. Only about 40% of all uh, uh, shootings are a result of homicide. So while that comes to mind at first, the biggest problem with firearms is suicide. <clears throat> and interestingly, it's suicide in rural areas. And more interesting, it's rural white Middle-aged men, the highest risk. Um, uh, being a veteran uh, is also, um, a, a, you know, related to firearm suicide. So it's a very complex problem. And you know, what are some of the solutions? It really depends on what population you're talking about. So what I've been talking about was that forty percent of community violence, right? Um, and we are finding one of the things I like about the, the greening idea and community improvement and community engagement in that process so that it isn't gentrification, so people can stay at home and stay in their communities and build community, is, is that it creates a focus not on people. It's not something wrong with people, but it starts us thinking about what about the environment. And then we start thinking about how did the environment get here in the first place? And yes, there might be some policy decisions, But then we can engage people in the process of, well, how do we then start start fixing the environment and not blame people? So it's not a blaming victim. And I really, that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to it. And the other reason is it's about community engagement, creating community and creating a sense of connection. And what we're finding with kids and with people in general, adults as well, is that those senses of connectedness to each other is a way to reduce Community violence. Engaging kids in that process, helping them think about uh, the the, their community and their place in it, helping them think critically about their world around them, finding alternative solutions, helps them not necessarily get involved in the gang or helps them be involved in more positive activities, and that can only have a a positive effect going forward. So um, those are some of the things that, that. we think about so thinking ecologically and thinking about community engagement in the process without blaming victims and without putting all the responsibility on community members. You know, uh, we don't, I don't want the message to go be out there to say, okay, well, all we need to do is they just need to plant a garden. Well, that's a way to minimize <laughs> yeah. what I'm talking about. And, you know, and I've gotten that criticism. I heard people, oh, so you just help people plant a garden. Why are we just give them seeds? It's it's not that simple. We have to help people with an infrastructure who haven't had those opportunities, who don't who don't even know, you know, that there that this opportunity can exist, or don't even know about like a, a tool library, so that they can share a shovel and a hoe, uh, and you know they can you know work together to plant a garden. And then, then maybe there could be opportunities to connect with the, with the public health department to learn about how to cook healthy foods um, and fresh foods. Um, so I think, you know, I think, you know, I don't want to sound so simplistic, but I think if we start thinking about, uh, it's not just about fixing people, but it is thinking about those structural
1: factors. That's a really good point too. And I think, you know, it's not, it's what I'm hearing too. And, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but yes, I mean, it's planting a garden, but that's, it's not about that. It's about the act of it. It's about, the in, being involved in the community. It's about creating those bonds and ties and strengthening the community in the neighborhood. You know, once you start feeling accountability to others and you know that you you have that sense of belonging, you know, I think you start looking at things from just outside your own little bubble and you start thinking about how things impact others. And that may, may make you less likely to make a violent decision because you would start thinking about, well, what is this going to mean for the person I was just spending time with? How is this going to affect them um, and how? I mean, and, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I think you're exactly right. When we've done some qualitative work, you know, the studies that I've been talking about, too, by the way, were, were comparison group studies. So we we had comparable street segments that we compared that had similar um um, socioeconomic status uh, you know based on census tract data so they were matched and when we when the greening was done when the community engaged greening was done it was even better than just plain greening compared to blocks where none of that happened you know, controlling for population size and you know number of people living on the block and all that sort of thing uh, but even qualitatively we we have people saying like you know i'm talking to my neighbors like i never talked before so developing that trust as well so it's not yeah. just sense of community but sense of connection and trust that you can trust your neighbor and it's eyes on the street and it's caring about each other and i know that sounds you know a little wishy-washy but it's hard work it's yeah. very difficult to do um but when it does happen, uh, it is it is magic uh, you know uh, Ann masten talks about uh, adolescent resilience and it's ordinary magic um that makes a difference it, it's not uh kids who overcome risk they're they're not particularly special except that they have this ordinary magic they or wow. the, the 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 heroes of everyday life and not necessarily the michael jordans or the um whoever your heroes are <laughs> um but it's you know the local people who you know help you get through life and help you kind of Uh, navigate um, your own, your feelings, your, you know, your ideas and help you kind of advance your own, you know, your own goals.
1: I love that. The ordinary magic. I might start stealing that because I think that's really cool and a really good way to put it. And it just, it just reminds me that, you know, this, yes, it's not easy work. It's not just simple as just saying, okay, do this. It's, this is an intentional choice. And when you make these intentional choices, you see, you reap the you reap the benefits, and I think if we can continue to shift our mindset into just making these choices, and when you choose, you're telling the world what your priorities are. And so, if we can prioritize these things, we can invest and we can make a difference. Um, wow, I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think, you know, I want to kind of close on this thought. I mean, you've talked about what the data tells us. We've talked about, um, you know, keeping kids involved and and uh, keeping kids tied and linked to not just other kids but to adults um so those you know wisdom can be imparted and, and so people can learn um from people who have been through the next phases of life um i'm wondering if we can just you know talk about um if you have some specific um you know and community initiatives that you've seen other ones you haven't talked about yet so after school program we have you know, talked before and and I know you've talked uh you've done research on you know things like after school funding and programming and how those things tie to there being less violence uh, particularly around youth you know I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can expand these opportunities um you know what do you think we could do to make these less you know um Make them more accessible, I guess. I want, I want. I want. to see these programs available to all kids, regardless of where you live. Um, you know, how do we do that? You know, it, it, You know, I know it's not an easy answer, but how would you. How would you go about um, trying to get these initiatives, and get these ideas actually into that, like the hands of communities across the country?
2: Well, we work with local organizations um, who sometimes are already doing the work. Um, we work with the land bank. I, I don't know um, which states, but there's just 20 some odd states. And I know, obviously, Michigan is one of them that uh, um, has a process for once somebody has abandoned a property after so many years, um, the county can take it back. Of course, then the county is stuck with, well, what do we do with it? So they've created these land bank authorities. Um, the Center for um, what is it called this? The Center for Community Progress in uh, in Detroit is a national organization uh, started by uh, Congressman Kildee before he was a congressman that works with organizations around this country um, around these greening issues and rezoning and, and thinking about that. So sort of more a local policy. So well, these are not expensive things to do, but you, you have to work with the local institutions in some way. And if there isn't a land bank authority of some kind, you know, A, one is to see if you can help create one in your own state or, or B, uh, you can maybe work with, uh, uh, you know, the extension service and uh, there might be some other resources. Uh, we do in, have in we
1: we do have land bank twin cities. Uh, yeah I think you do. It. yeah I do and think, so, I think yeah.
2: Minnesota has that so um usually it's it's an authority that's given by the legislature and then the counties are in charge and then counties may give it back down, down to the cities and in in big cities when the city is basically most of the county but um so I think you know thinking about creating opportunities for kids like in in the after school program um, as an empiricist, you know, there's lots of after-school programs, but looking for the evidence base that exists for them, uh, it's relatively inexpensive to implement. Yes, it's um, you know, the, the, we you can download the curriculum for free if you follow the curriculum and, and have a teacher do that in in an after-school program and get kids engaged in that process. It creates its own momentum after a while. Um, but I think the things I was talking about were the things that you know I you know we know that you know have some. Um, some effectiveness. I think the other thing is uh, creating coalitions and and maybe, or maybe teams of that cut across sectors. So having the police around the table, maybe the courts around the table, but also public health around the table, Uh, maybe some local policymakers, the land banks, schools, uh, maybe some community-based organizations that work with kids to kind of develop a program that or implementing a program like yes, that there's some evidence that engaging kids in these things is a positive aspect of their lives and um, helps them kind of feel ownership and all the things we talked about before. We're studying right now public art, so getting kids involved in public art and taking back community in these ways, I think, is a uh, is a is powerful for me. So I'm not sure I'm saying anything anything newer. Um, uh, you know, that I didn't already say in terms of community, you know, for community violence prevention. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking ecologically and not just looking at individuals, uh, thinking about what are some of the um, uh, both physical structure but also policy structures that may be barriers to some of these activities and for communities to come come back and, and be vibrant themselves. Um, you know, I've not done this, but I've thought about working with uh, franchise companies, uh, Domino's or Taco Bell's or whatever, seeing if they would maybe, you know, in a local community, donate a franchise and let the community run it, in providing training and and creating a place where people work, where people learn to uh, how to run a business, what it is to run a business, and to feel like it they own the business and the profits go back into a Nonprofit that helps that community, whether it's a programs for kids or planting trees um, in uh, or, you know, maybe developing a, a, an empty lot into a, a baseball field or, um, you know, a, a park for kids to, you know, maybe play kickball or bocce ball or something. I mean, I think those are the kinds of things that creating senses of communities. Um, and, you know, we've had in the qualitative data, we've had people say, you know, we never thought anybody would um, do anything. But now that people are paying attention, it feels good. And I rolled up my sleeves and helped them. And, you know, it's that kind of thing, I think, that we really need to start to kind of come back to. Uh, to Tocqueville noticed, you know, in the uh, 19th century that Americans were uh, a people of uh, you know of, of engaging with each other in voluntary organizations and and giving to each other and we've lost that i think in our society yeah and uh our data suggesting that, that that does matter and that we need to recreate that um and we and we don't want and we can't isolate people and say okay we'll help you create community and you do it it has it it takes a village to raise a child and it, and, it, and it takes you know everybody in a city to turn it around and so everybody really has to be become part of that process, whether it's in in support in some way, physically, monetarily, psychologically. Um, but there, it, it, we have to recreate the the society that we want us ourselves to be that, that Tocqueville talked about, oh, you know, centuries ago.
1: I think that's a great point, and I think that's a great uh, place for us to to leave it there. I think building community and, and investing community and, and building community ties. It's it's got to be, you know, the beginning of, of what we can do. And um, I really can't thank you enough, Dr. Zimmerman, for coming on and for giving us, you know, a sense of the work that's being done and, and telling us, you know, giving us straight cold facts, saying that we know this stuff can work. And, you know, I, what I get from this conversation is hope that, you know, if we can continue to educate people about what is effective and why and to show them. You know, that it's a, that it can have an impact on their community and communities across our state and across all of our states in, in America. I think, you know, that gives me hope that that people can see this and that you can flip that switch from, you know, not from disengaging to saying, oh, OK, now I can engage. I can be a part of this. I can make a difference. Um, well, I mean, I just I, I, I learned a lot and I'm sure our, our audience had a, had a good time listening to.
2: Well, thank you for the time and the opportunity, and I'm I'm delighted that this conversation uh, at least gave you some hope. I, I mean, I'm sort <laughs> of hopeful um, that we can make this a better place for you know the next generation uh, and for us now. So, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, Dr. Mark Zimmerman, the Marshall H. Becker Collegiate Professor and Co-Director of the Institute of Firearm Injury Prevention at the University of Michigan. Uh, It was our our pleasure having you. Uh, This has been another episode of 52 Reasons Why, the Protect Minnesota podcast. I'm Jared Muscovitz, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us on Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. If you want to listen to past episodes of the podcast or for more information about how you can be involved in this movement, visit protectmn.org. Until next time.